Isaiah 42, 5 through 8. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And from Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened in something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken at once to heaven. And now moving down to verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. 
Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind, to come, kind enough to come to me. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask that you would do the thing now that only you can do. Lord, would you shine light on these words that are in your word? Would you shine light on the words that I've prepared? And would you be so kind to use these words to great effect, Lord, in our hearts and in our souls and to give us great hope? and great confidence in our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in the strange, uh, random, kind of off chance that the work of Donald Anderson McGavran is not at the forefront of your mind right now, let me share a little quote with you. And by the work of Donald Anderson McGavern, of course, I'm talking about his 1955 book, Bridges of God, or his 1970 book called Understanding Church Growth. But in the event that that's not before your mind right now, can you guys tell I have fun sometimes? <laughs> here's, here's what McGavern says, and I quote. People become Christians 
fastest when they do not have to cross ethnic, cultural, class, or language barriers. People come to Christ fastest when they're not forced to cross any kind of ethnic, cultural, class, or language barrier. Now, if McGavin is right about that, that's another talk for sure for, sure for another day. It's just that Peter and Cornelius have not read those books. Because this story is about exactly the opposite. This story from Acts 10, when Peter... When Cornelius has a vision and Peter has a vision and Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius and his people and that group of Cornelius and his people, this group of Gentiles come to faith in Christ, it is all about the crossing of ethnic, cultural, class, and language barriers. That's what the story is for. Tonight, we are going to take a look at it. Um, This this story really has four sections, as you heard me read it. It it has the section of Cornelius' vision, it has the section of Peter's vision, it has Peter's preaching, and it has the response. So we're going to talk about each of those things briefly. And then after we talk about these four sections of this text, I'm going to ask you two pressing and probing questions intended to be aimed directly at your heart. And see, it's it's those two questions that will translate this from a history lesson, a Bible lesson, into an actual sermon, into a word of hope for me and for you. So let's take a look at these four sections. So let's begin um, with what's going on here, Um, what's happening here with Cornelius and with Peter and this vision. To begin, before I talk about the four kind of particular sections of this story, let me just give you a little background. Let's figure out what's happening here. This is a turning point, a watershed defining moment in the story of the Bible. The Bible is full of these moments. It's full of moments when our Lord acts in time and space. And at that point forward, nothing can ever be the same again. The Bible is full of these moments. For example, when our Lord makes promises to Adam and Eve that one day a descendant would be sent who would crush the serpent's head. For example, when Abram is called to be the father of a great nation. As an example, when God's people are led out of captivity in Egypt in the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. As an example, when promises are made to King David that one day a descendant would come who would rule over the kingdom forever. When God's people go off to exile and they return. When Jesus shows up on the scene as the very salvation of God in his person. When the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, and then tonight when this happens, this scene is about what the New Testament will call the dividing wall of hostility that sits behind the background of much of the biblical story. The division, the dividing wall of hostility between the Jewish people and 
the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, everybody else. Much of the book of Romans is dealing with that divide. Parts of the book of Ephesians are about that divide. The book of Galatians is really about that divide. This dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews sits behind so much of the Bible's story. As an example, here is what the Jewish people thought about the Gentile people. Jewish people thought that the Gentiles were sort of these debaucherous, unhinged, um, intellectually inferior, gross, disgusting people. In certain quarters and of Jewish circles, Gentiles, there would even be prayers that would be prayed where Jewish people would thank God that they weren't Gentiles. Of course, the Gentiles had very strong opinions about the Jewish people too. They thought they were old, out of touch, stubborn, completely self-righteous. Thought they were prideful. They thought they were bizarre. They thought they were lazy. Like, why is there one day a week they refuse to work? Why do they have all these nitpicky dietary restrictions and laws? Why do they do that very strange operation surgery to their male babies? They're strange, weird people. It's kind of into this tension that this passage is intended to speak. So first of all, Cornelius' vision. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to people, and prayed continually to God. So a few things we know about Cornelius immediately. He's of high class. He is a Roman soldier. In the Roman world, you didn't get more powerful and elite than a Roman soldier, particularly one who has command over another group of soldiers. They were the cultural elite of the day. Likely very, very wealthy, powerful. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman man. But he's an exception in the sense that he seems to have some sort of devout devotion or respect for Israel's God. See, there was at least some Romans that thought the Jewish people were at least interesting because they had some sense of morality that was kind of keeping them tethered. They had a sense of self-control. In a world where, where everything was kind of unhinged, the Jewish people had a moral compass, and some Romans, some powerful Romans in particular, respected that about them. And you heard me read it, but, but Cornelius' vision basically involves an angel coming and saying, there's a man named Peter. He's at a house of a man who, who's a tanner who lives by the sea. Send your people to go get him and bring him to you. He's got a message for you. I want you to hear. That's Cornelius' vision. And then, and then secondly, we have Peter's vision. Look at verse 9. 
The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened. Something like a great sheet opened and and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's vision is a bizarre vision. I mean, can I just speak plainly? Like, like a, a tablecloth in the heavens sort of begins to fold down as animals begin to descend. He's hungry, and he's told to take any of those animals and kill and eat. Now, this, this vision of these animals, of all different types of animals, this is a vision intended to offend his kind of orthodox, kosher sensibilities. That's why he responds the way that he does. In verse 14, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. Now, this is not the first time that Peter says to the Lord, by no means. But in this case, he's, he's upset because he's being asked to compromise on his kosher diet. And it's interesting, it's not just unclean animals, but it's all kinds of animals. So in other words, it's clean animals mixed with unclean animals. And we actually miss the point of this vision if we don't remember that this is not just about food. It's actually about fellowship. See, the reason why Jews and Gentiles would not associate or eat with one another was because of the dietary restrictions. See, in the ancient world, to, to eat with somebody was to be family with somebody. In the ancient world, to share a meal with somebody was to say, you belong to me and I belong to you. We are bearing burdens. We are one together. And see, in this vision, what Peter is being told is that inability to have that table fellowship with Gentiles is being removed. That he can be family with them. that he can be brothers with them and sisters with them, that they can belong under the same heavenly father in God's family together. That's Peter's vision. Now listen to Peter's preaching. Look at verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter goes on to preach, to review the very basic message of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection. He preaches the gospel to them. And it's interesting how Peter frames this. He opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. The language is, is, is strong. He's saying, truly, I take hold of, I believe, I really grasp the fact that God doesn't show partiality. It's another strong word. It has to do with God does not react to people differently. 
based on their ethnic background. And then, of course, that's Peter's preaching, and of course, the response, verse 44. When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter goes on to declare in verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The gospel is preached. Cornelius and the Gentiles respond in faith and repentance. They are converted. And this group of Gentile Christians now, and this group of Jewish Christians now, now understand themselves to be belonging to the same family. Two words. So what? And it's an interesting moment in the Bible's story. It's an interesting history lesson. But I wonder if we can ask two deeper questions aimed at your heart that I think would have hit Peter in the heart as these things unfolded. First of all, I think this text was intended to take aim at Peter and also take aim at our smug attitudes that we can have about others. See, there's a, there's a scene that we read about in another place in the New Testament where, where Peter is actually enjoying table fellowship with Gentile Christians. But a group of Jewish Christians come around. It says he withdraws really quick and acts like he wasn't eating with them. And in that moment, the Apostle Paul, you read about this in Galatians, had to oppose him, like confront him publicly to his face. So we know Peter had the same temptation that you and I have. So let me ask you just about smug attitudes that you and I can have toward others. Have you ever, have you ever had the thought in your heart, maybe been so bold to utter it with your mouth, things like how frustrated you are with everyone else's kind of lack of commitment? I mean, you're committed and, and they're like really flaky. Have you ever been frustrated by the fact that, that you're devoted to God, but, but no one else seems to be? No one else seems to be taking this thing seriously. Have you ever been tempted to have suspicion in your heart for those people who just aren't as serious and driven about faith as you seem to be? Have you ever thought someone was stupid? Just in general. 
but also for a particular viewpoint about a certain issue. Have you ever just made these statements like, women are just, or or men are just, have you ever just in general had this like, those people are just so, And to ask you a harder question that I think this passage demands that we ask is have you had those actual thoughts about somebody in this room? Have you had those thoughts about somebody like in this room? Because I think this scene is intended to invite us to walk back from those kinds of postures toward others who are in our family. Doesn't mean you can't disagree. It means you don't have differences of opinion. But the smug attitude that we can carry in our hearts, this passage is intended to sort of cut the support out from under that. It is a good thing that you are in the body of Christ with people that you probably wouldn't necessarily be friends with if not for Jesus. That's a good thing. Now, here's a, here's a second question. A second question. And I think this is a question that Peter would have been forced to have faced. Are you ever tempted to trust in the wrong things in order that you might consider yourself righteous before God? See, one of the the main things I think this passage makes us reckon with is that there are things we think make us right before God, and those are not the things that make us right before God. So, so in Peter's case, it's, it's this kind of temptation that he would have felt to think things like, well, I, I keep Sabbath, I eat kosher, I keep the law. Surely God loves me because I've never eaten anything unclean. See, for for Peter, it might have been this temptation to believe, I have this this heritage. I have this family heritage. See, the, the whole point of this passage is that people are right before God, not on the basis of of law-keeping or ethnic affiliation in any way, but people are right before God because the work of Jesus Christ. Let, let Let me just announce something to you as plainly as I can. Okay? Y'all, this is, this is seriously going to be the best news that you hear all week. You're going to hear a lot of bad news this week, but I'm about to tell you the best news you're going to hear all week long. You, and I mean you, I mean you in this room. You are known and loved and accepted and forgiven 
and free and justified, not because of anything that you can do, but you are loved and you are known, you are accepted, you are forgiven, and you are free because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it is so hard to remember that. See, it's from that very secure place that now you become freed in order to, yes, obey God. You become free in order to love God. You become free in order to love others. You will never be able to live in love. Those people, those people, without the secure foundation of knowing that you're right before God because of Jesus. And I, and I know you, I mean, you're literally sitting there looking at me like, yeah, yeah Joel, we know that. And, and I'm telling you, do you really? Y'all, y'all, I remember where I was sitting when, to use Peter's language, I understood, I took hold of, I believed that God loved me whether I was a good pastor or a bad one. Or just an okay one. And I was today years old when I needed to remember that again. See, the things we think make us right before God are not necessarily the things that make us right before God. We're right before God because of the work of Jesus and because of our union with him. I was with a friend this week, um, and I was remembering a time, another time in our life and relationship when, when he had like his highest career achievement he'd ever had. And a group of people had gathered around to celebrate this like wonderful career achievement. And at a certain point in that celebration, when we were celebrating literally the, the highest pinnacle of his professional success, somebody in the room had, the, had this sort of prompting of God's spirit to tell him, hey, we're so proud of you, but do you know that you are loved by Jesus even if this had gone very, very, very badly? And y'all, the look in his eyes when he heard that said to him, because the human heart cannot hear that enough times. Let's pray together.